Hey, this is Steve Balton. You're here on My Turning Point with really special guest, rock legend Alice Cooper today. Man, I have interviewed everyone over the years, and Alice is among my favorite interviews in the world. This guy has so many great stories. I mean, this is a guy who used to drink with John Lennon and Keith Moon. This time we are talking about his brilliant new album, Detroit Stories, which takes it back to the beginning, to his early days. Really fun conversation. Hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. I am great. Uh, just, you know, like every other band, waiting to get on the road. But uh, let's see how this, uh, how this, you know, how these shots are going, the vaccines. And I think that's going to make a big difference. Yeah, well, I saw that Fauci had just said that, you know, hopefully by fall, there can be, start to be shows again. You know, I mean... How are you dealing with it? It's funny because we've actually spoken a couple times of late. Once was for the sobriety recovery issue, which is actually coming out now in February. And then I think a few months ago as well. It's so interesting though, because I think back to interviewing Ozzy, maybe, I don't know, four or five months ago, something like that for a story I was doing on Randy Rhodes. And Ozzy was just losing his fucking mind. He's like, dude, he's like, because, you know, I had to come home early because of the neck surgery. He's like, this is the longest I've been home in my entire life. He's like, he literally, he said, he's like, I'm losing my fucking mind. It's just, it was the same with us. We, we were in Germany and Berlin, and uh, we did a, a rock, rock meets classic. And it was me and um, Robin Zander and all these people with a 90-piece orchestra and a rock band doing our songs, right? And that, after the show that night in Berlin, they said, you have 24 hours before we close the borders. That night we took off, got to Munich, and got to, you know, Atlanta, Georgia, yeah, almost still in our stage clothes because we didn't want to get stuck in Germany. For <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. You know, I figured it would be a month, maybe two, you know, uh, and now it's coming up on a year. Uh, you know, I mean, I think in some ways we had toured so much, 190 cities almost every year. It was kind of kind of a relief but at the same time, I, I don't know one band that's not like a racehorse right now, you know, uh, at the starting line wanting to get out and play. I mean, that's why we live our, most of our life on that stage. And when you take that away, that's like taking a drug away. It's almost like coming off of a drug, you know. Yeah. No, it's really funny because I also interviewed Bootsy Collins not long ago. We were talking about, you know, his relationship with George Clinton. And, you know, George has said he's going to retire. And Bootsy was just cracking up. He's like, no, man. He's like, George, he's like, playing live is like fishing. He's like, George just needs that audience. He's never going to retire. And it's funny because I think there probably are a lot of artists yeah. who during this time have probably missed it more than you even thought you would because it's kind of like, all right, cool, you know, we've done this so long. It's like a lot of artists I talked to at the beginning were like, it's really nice to have the break. I'm spending time with my family. You and I talked about the fact that you were golfing every six Dang. days a week, yeah. you know, but I'm sure at some point it's like, okay, well, after, you know, it's funny. After a couple months, it's nice to have the break. After a few months, you're itching to get back. After a couple more months, you're like, you kind of get used to it. And then when it comes up on a year, you're probably like, dude, what the fuck? Am I ever going to yeah. get back on the road? Yeah. You know, I mean, I think that's especially guys that were lifers. I call them lifers, you know, guys that have spent their whole life on the road. Uh, McCartney and the Stones and, you know, us. I mean, that was the, most of my life has been on the road. So, uh, you know, but at the same time, you know, it, not, this has never happened in the history of, the, of the world where the world just stopped 
and everybody had to reorganize. But, you know, that didn't mean you couldn't write songs, didn't mean you couldn't record songs. And I, I found myself writing a ton of stuff. I called, I had Johnny uh, Depp called the other day from the Vampires, you know, and he goes, I got so many songs written. <laughs> I said, Joe Perry says, yeah, me too. And I said, yeah, me too. You know, we're going to, let's put out a triple album, you know, uh, because that's all you really can do, you know, is, is write and, and, uh, and stay connected that way. That's so funny. I talked about that with someone at the beginning of this, and I really don't remember who it was now, but we joked about that. And we were joking about, um, because I've done so many interviews over quarantine, but we were joking about doing the quarantine box set. And it sounds like you guys are going to have that. You know, I feel like most artists are going to have that. You, you know, know, you're you're right. I've I've the Detroit Stories album was done before the pandemic, so we had already had that done, right? And that's not even out till February, and we're already working on the next album. By Ezra and I are, and so you know, we're we're already collecting songs and and and, and getting a a feel for what the next album is going to be. And we could probably do another one after that before we go back out on tour. Wait a minute, I lost you. I lost you. I can't hear you. Oh, I said we're going to come on to Detroit Stories in one second. But I did want to ask you about the turning point moment for you. And it's funny because you and I have talked so many times over the years about your sobriety. So for you, is there a recent turning point moment or, or something that sort of, you know, as I always put it, that led you to where you are today or that led well, I, you to where you are right now. But you know, it's, it's the one thing that, uh, that struck me was how many bands um, that are in their, you know, 70s are going to just say, okay, that's it. I give up. I'm not going to go back on tour. You know, I, I'll bet you a bunch. I'll bet you there's going to be a bunch of bands that just say, okay, this is, you know, we, we don't really need to do this anymore. Well, you know, the funny thing is, is none of us need to do it. I mean, none of us have to do it financially, but you need to do it if that's what you do. You know, I mean, I, I can't imagine not being on stage. So this, it kind of makes you hungry, you know, at the same time where, where you know, you can get a little bit too used to the road to the point where you're going, okay, another show, another day, blah, blah, blah. You know, whereas this makes you hungry for the road again. And, uh, yeah, I, 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 but I bet you there's going to be a lot of big bands from the seventies that just kind of call it quits just because they're just tired of waiting. Uh, you know, that's definitely something I wondered about. And also, unfortunately, there's some bands who maybe, you know, age wise, just aren't able to get back on the road. I, yeah. I've wondered about that with other ones, but it's interesting. So was there a point for you where you realized during this absence that in fact you were getting hungry again and that it's funny the way you put it, cause it kind of takes you back to the beginning. Yeah, it does. It's and at the same time, no. I mean, believe me, uh, my wife and I, Cheryl, Cheryl has been on the show since Nightmare, you know, seventy six, and she's in this show, and she's she's in the uh, Vampire show, and she was a ballet dancer and a jazz dancer, so she's been on stage as long as I have, and we're still. And both of us are going. Oh, come on, you know, you can't even go do any small gigs. You can't even go to a bar and, and play with a band. You know, that would be fun, you know, just to get up with a, with a band in a, in a small bar and, and do covers. At least you'd be back up there, you know. But, I mean, even that's not happening. So I think we're going to really count our blessings when we get back out there, you know. And hopefully everything, hopefully the vaccine makes a big dent in, in uh, 
you know, in the time that we can get back. Yeah. So it's interesting for you as you start to think about this. Let's take it on to Detroit story. And it, well, it's funny. I like the symmetry, though, of talking about taking it back to the beginning and being hungry and then coming back, you know, to the idea of Detroit stories. I mean, is there a does it bring it all full circle? Can't talk. Does it bring it all full circle for you? That idea of being the young, hungry band and then doing an album that takes you back to your beginning roots. Yeah, that well, Detroit, you know, I mean, one of those things was Bob and I never necessarily go into an album just to do 12 songs. We always try to find a theme, you know, paranormal and uh, welcome to my nightmare and schools out. They were all, you know, they were all concept albums. And it's just the way we think. It, 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 both of us are very naturally theatrical. And so the deal was, was uh, I, we were talking about how L.A. had the doors, you know, and that was a sexy rock, you know, with, uh, with love. Uh, just, and then San Francisco had their Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane and New York had the Young Rascals and that sound. Detroit was guitar driven rock and roll. And that's where we belonged. When we didn't click into San Francisco or, or L.A., we went to Detroit and all of a sudden there we were on stage with bands very much like us. It just, if you go to Detroit, I mean, Seals and Croft would never do well in Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because Detroit audiences want, they want their bands to be loud and with attitude. You got to have attitude if you're playing Detroit. And that was exactly where we belonged. So when 18 broke out of Detroit, you know, well, we would do shows like at the Grandy Ballroom and at East Town, and it would be the MC5, the Stooges, Alice Cooper, and the Who. That's a pretty good night of rock and roll right there. You know, uh, and that was an average weekend, or maybe the next week it was Savoy Brown, or the next week it was the Kinks, or somebody. But all these young bands that hadn't made it, you know, Detroit bands, none of, none of us had made it yet. You know, we were just local bands. And yeah, going back to Detroit then was my homage to hard rock. I said, this album has to be, has to be done in Detroit. It has to be all Detroit players. It has to be about Detroit. And we're literally going to Detroit, recording it in Royal Oak, East Detroit. You know, uh, the, only, the only guy that wasn't from Detroit was Bonamassa. You know, he was our guest Detroiter. But there were certain songs I really wanted him on, you know, that him and Steve Hunter together were going to be so good, you know. So, you know, I really tried to capture, I tried to create characters that would have been in Detroit, you know, the Hamtramck Hammer and uh, Painkiller Jane, you know, characters like that, that I guarantee you they live in Detroit. <laughs> you know, see, this is so interesting. By the way, I love the fact that you, with uh, the cover of Rock and Roll, Change it from a New York station to Detroit station. Well, yeah, what you know, when Lou did it, he did it. He did it with the Velvet Underground, and at that time, that that heroin chic, you know, kind of throw it away. You know, the song was kind of you know, and then we did it with the rock and roll. You know, and Bob and I heard that and went, "What if we Detroitized that song?" And when we did, we turned it into a rock monster, and he played it for Lori Anderson, and Lori loved it. You know, and she said Lou would have loved this version. You know, 
Yeah, well, it's so interesting too. It's funny what you were saying because I started to think about this. Well, okay, when you and I spoke for the Variety piece a few months ago, I believe it was September, we talked about, we joked about the, because uh, I had just done a piece with Big Sean about his Detroit album. And we joked about doing a giant size Detroit festival, which I still want to see the rock side of Detroit and the R&B hip hop side of Detroit into one giant Detroit festival. But it's interesting because I started to think about this today. And, you know, it's funny. I was interviewing someone not long ago from the UK and the debate is always, well, what's the beginning of the punk scene? Is it Sex Pistols UK? No. Is it Ramones, New York? And then I started no. thinking about it. Iggy. It's Detroit. Yeah, as Iggy. I mean, Iggy was... Well, excuse me, and the, the MC5. Yeah, I mean, really total punk. You know, it was like not sophisticated at all. It was just, in fact, the Stooges was dun, 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 and just let Iggy go and let him do what he does, you know. We wrote more songs, I think, that were song songs. And MC5 were a show band. They were like a black review with white guys. I mean, if you, when you saw their show, they did all kinds of, they were a great show band, you know. Um, but here's the crazy thing. Back then, if we were playing the Grandy, and it was a total rock and roll, sweaty, black leather jacket audience, and then you'd look down and you'd see, oh, there's uh, Smokey. And there's uh, two of the girls from the Supremes. And there's, oh, there's a guy from uh, the Temptations. They would come to the rock shows. And we would go to see them at the Soul Review shows, you know, and things like that. If you, in the, in the middle of the riots, if you had long hair and you were in a band, you could go to any black bar in Detroit and you were not the enemy. You were just, you were a musician. So you were a brother. And, and so there was there really, you know, uh, music was the, was the common denominator. And as long as you were a musician, you were, you were not the enemy. Well, now, see, this is interesting. When you go back and write and when you do an album like this and you revisit these characters and you revisit these ideas, it's such a fascinating thing because how much does it sort of trigger the memories and bring back the stuff that you hadn't thought about in a long time or, or you know, sort of because, again, as I talk about with artists all the time, right, and as you and I have talked about, you know, when you're doing a song like 18, whatever, you know, <laughs> when you do a song that says I'm 18 and I'm a man and now you're 70-something, it's a whole different song. You it, know, it's it, a very different world. So, but for you, how much does doing this album take you back to all these things that you hadn't thought about or that you had, you know, or that gives you a different appreciation for them? Well, the way that I get away with that, and it really does work, is the fact that the Alice character is timeless. He, he's 18. When I'm doing 18 on stage, Alice is 18. And he means it. I mean, he's, he's exactly that character that's angry and he's pissed off and he's 18 and he can't vote, but he can go to war. And the trick to that song in the end is I'm 18 and I like it. You know, it's not I'm 18 and I hate it. He says, I'm 18 and I like the chaos. I like all of this going on in my life because I'm 18. I can do anything I want to do. And that was, I think, the hook on that song was I'm 18 and I like it. I love it. You know, every 18-year-old kid went, yeah, that's me, man. Like every other kid that hears my generation to this day goes, yeah, he's talking about me. <laughs> when you write an anthem that, that, that kids even now can connect to, school's out. You know, 
I didn't mean that to be a prediction. It was going to be out forever like it is. <laughs> but, <laughs> but those anthems are, are, are songs that speak to every generation. Well, absolutely. It's funny because I was talking about this with Paul Stanley not long ago in regards to Detroit Rock City. Um, no, actually in regards to Rock and Roll All Night. Did you know right away when you wrote 18, did you feel right away that it was something special? And, and do you remember like the first time you played it? Was it an instantaneous thing with the crowd? I, I thought that that song was, would never, ever be in the top 40. And somehow CKLW loved it. And CKLW was the biggest station in the Midwest, even though it was in Windsor, Canada. But it was the entire Midwest. If you had a hit on CKLW, that was like it. I mean, you were on the biggest station. And it just so happened that that song, they loved it. Uh, Rosalie you know, she just said, this is, this is great. You know, I love this, this record. But the, the trick to that song also was the fact that Bob Ezrin had to reteach us how to play, how to get out of each other's way when you're recording. And we always wanted to make it more complicated because we wanted to be the Yardbirds, you know. He used to say, <laughs> dumb it down, dumb it down. And every time we'd play it again, he'd go, dumb it down even more. Because the kids say, I'm 18. It's not complicated. So it got so basic that the simplicity of that song was the power of it. If we would have made it complicated, it wouldn't have worked at all. Bob Ezrin knew how to dumb it down and make it work. You know, now later on, we got more complicated with Nightmare and, you know, Billion Dollar Babies and stuff. But Love It to Death and Killer were just real basic rock and roll albums. Well, so do you remember, like, I'm so fascinated with this, though, and we're going to bring this in and circle it back in with Detroit Stories. Like, do you remember, like, the very first time that you played 18 Live or that first moment that you knew with an audience that it was special, that it was a hit? Yeah, it was It was at the Grandy. And, you know, it, it, get, it was getting played every day. We almost got tired of hearing it, you know, which was uh, something I never thought I'd ever say, you know, because we never thought we'd ever be on the radio, you know, with our reputation and everything. And here it was, we're getting played next to Frank Sinatra or the Beatles and the Supremes, you know, uh, and we first play it. And as soon as we played it, dum, dum, da, 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 audience went crazy because they finally had a local band that had a hit. <laughs> That's so interesting. Do you still get that sort of rush, that feeling when you've written songs like on Detroit stories that you have, do you still get that same sort of like, because I just talked about this with ACDC not long ago too, and it's like, you know, there were certain songs on Realize that they felt like, okay, it reminded them of the feeling of writing songs on Back in Black. Yeah. Do you still, and are there songs off that album in particular, off the new album rather, I'm sorry, that you still get that sort of, uh, you know, that just adrenaline rush where you know you have something special? Yeah, and, and it wouldn't be on the album if every one of those songs didn't have that. You know, I mean, we went through a lot of songs and the ones that we looked at each other and went, yes, are the ones that made the album. And that was including Wayne Kramer. And that was including, you know, we kind of included all the guys, their opinions. Uh, Johnny, Johnny B on, on the Lou Reed song just plays his butt off on that song. The drums on that song are amazing. And, you know, Johnny's 70 something, you know, and I'm telling you, he's every bit as good as he ever was. Uh, and Wayne, I like Wayne's playing now better than I did back then. So, I mean, if, you, if, it, didn't, if it didn't make us all go, yeah, we, it was going to make the album. 
All right. So was that, but it's funny because I talk about this with all artists, right? All artists are perfectionists. You're always like, you, you, you always feel like, okay, when you listen to this, there's just that little moment that you, as an artist, you're always pushing more. So are there moments on this album where you really feel like, you know, okay, you hit, this is exactly what you wanted to do or where you hit that, like, are there, I guess you would call it sweet spots using a sports analogy yeah, or yeah. we're here, we'll use a golf analogy. Yeah, I'll tell you what, it's a, uh, Lou Reed's the rock and roll song. We listened back to that and went, oh man, like, we can't do it any better than that. You know, I mean, it's on the money. Sister Anne was another one like that. Um, Our Love Will Change the World, as weird as that song is. It's a great it's, song. It's a happy, happy song. And the lyrics are totally subversive. <laughs> it's like the children of the dam singing to our generation. And they're singing to us and they're going, um, could you guys get out of the way? Because our love's going to change. And we're going to change this world into a place you won't recognize. You won't understand it. But you'll get used to it. And I said, wow, what a great juxtaposition, you know, uh, kids telling us to get out of the way. Well, you know, what's interesting about that, though, too, is I remember one of the very first interviews we did for BAM magazine in California. Where we were talking about your the influence of The Who and writing popular songs. And, you know, it's funny because that is just such a happy 60 garage song. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, The Who were such a I mean, they were so good because they if you listen to the records, there's nothing ever in the way of anything, you know, uh, that big guitar, that big power chord. And, you know, Pete Townsend told me, he says, when they lost uh, their bass player, and he says, that was half the, half the sound. He says, he played bass. He was like half of the music. I'm one half. He's the other half. And Keith Moon was, I think the best, best stage drummer I ever saw in my life. I mean, he was amazing. You listen to what he's playing on some of that stuff, you know. Uh, but when you listen to the records, nothing's in the way of the vocal. It's always clean where the vocal comes in. And when Townsend comes in, he comes in at the right time with the right stuff, like George Harrison does with the Beatles. He wasn't overplaying. That's really interesting because we've talked about this too. And it's funny going back to, you know, what you were talking about, the simplicity of 18 versus, you know, some of the more complicated stuff. I think there's also a thing, right? As you get older, when we've talked about this, you appreciate simplicity more, I think in every aspect of life. So do you feel like then when you come back to, you know, the early stuff and you revisit songs like 18 and School's Out and the Killer album and Love It to Death, and then you come back to you know, and you think about doing songs like Our Love Will Change the World or a song like Rock and Roll, which is a damn just straight rock and roll anthem. And, you know, do you do you find yourself having more of an appreciation for simplicity as, you got, as you've gotten older? Yeah, I think just that just comes from being in the studio a lot and being on stage a lot. And, and sometimes it's really hard to teach. We've got, I've got three guitar players. You know, I've got Ryan Roxy and Tommy Hendrickson and I've got Nita Strauss. And Nita is, you know, she's my shredder. You know, she, she won uh, Guitarist of the Decade in Guitar Magazine. I mean, here's a girl that looks like a, a you know, a Victoria's Secret model and plays like Steve Vai, you know. So now, how do you get all that control so that they're not all playing at the same time? That's the imp important thing. During rehearsal, we sit there and they sit there and they go, okay, I'll take this solo. You guys sit out. You know, and Tommy says, okay, this solo is good for her. Let's, let's, Nita, this is your solo. And that's, and it works perfectly together because they all understand that if they're all playing, it's just going to be mush. 
So it's interesting for you then, like, let's talk about those moments of simplicity on this record and some of those favorite moments for you where you just tapped into that early thing. And like you said, you know, everything on this album, you got that adrenaline rush, but obviously some of the songs are going to tap more back into the early spirit. So are there moments for you on Detroit stories that you feel like really just tapped into the early days of Alice Cooper in Detroit when you're back on the Grandi stage? Well, even, even taking it to the uh, ultimate thing is, the original band on the record uh, doing uh, uh, Social Debris. We wrote that song and together, the original band, Glenn, of course, is gone, but uh, we sat and wrote it because we always felt like Social Debris. We didn't feel like we belonged in that, in the flow of traffic there, you know. And that song came off as a song that should have been on Love It to Death or Killer. And here's the great story behind this. Um, Bob kept getting letters from this kid in, I think, in Ireland. That kid, he's not a kid, he's like 50 years old, 60 years old. And he said the only albums that he learned how to play guitar on was Pretties For You and Easy Action, our first two Frank Zappa albums, you know. And nobody played like Glenn. Glenn Buxton and Sid Barrett were like two peas in a pod. And this guy, that's how he learned to play. So Bob got back in touch with him and he said, so you can play like Glenn? And he said, sure. We sent him the track and he played the lead guitar on it. And he sounded like Glenn. So, I mean, that, that track right there, we, after we listened back to it, we all went, geez, we actually went back to 1972. It's just pure Alice. It's not sophisticated, but it's got that it's got that thing to it that just works. You know, you listen to it and you go, that could be only Alice Cooper, the original band. All right. Well, unfortunately, we've got to wrap up. And as always, we could talk forever about this. But it's interesting. I mean, when you go back and listen, right, I'm going to make this a one because I said last question, but I got to ask this quickly. You know, we joked about the Detroit Festival because we talked about that before when we did the Variety interview. Now that the record is coming out and hopefully as we say COVID's up, who are your three Detroit bands that have to be on the bill with you? If, you, if you're booking the rock side of this, who, who's on there for you? Like the Detroit well, bands that have to be on there. You have to have Jack, you know, Jack White is, is so creative, Detroit kid. You know, I mean, he's that guy who does everything totally against the tide. Everything he does is against everything you learn about writing a hit record, and yet everything he writes is so catchy that it's great. And so he's he's a total maverick, you know, musically. Um, him, I think you you have to have Iggy. You know, Iggy is the heart and soul of Detroit. I mean, he he's just you can't say Detroit without him. And honestly, you, I think you got to have Bob Seger. I think Bob Seger was one of the guys that had, I mean, he had as many hits as we did, you know? I mean, that was, both of us broke out and became national bands, but it's pure Detroit. Absolutely. All right. I know we got to wrap up. So very quickly, what, you know, when people listen to this record, what's the one thing that you want them to take about Detroit? Cause it's funny. I mean, I'm listening, I'm thinking about this and I'm like, well, what is it about the city that created this innovation because you think about Motown, you think about, you know, the birthplace of punk, arguably you think about the, all the acts that came from, and I fucking love Seeker, one of my favorite artists of all time. And then you think about the Detroit techno scene and techno in the U S really started in Detroit and Chicago. So yeah. 
what is it about Detroit that fuels this innovation? And when people listen to this record in one sentence, what is it that you want them to know about Detroit? Detroit's not the butt of the joke. If it is the butt of the joke, then it's a, the most creative butt of any joke ever. <laughs> <laughs> All right, good wrap up. Anything you want to add that I didn't get to ask you about? No, I think you know. I think we covered it pretty good. I think you know. It's just a. It's a. It's a record that goes all over the place, but it's a guitar-driven rock and roll record. And to me, that's what Alice Cooper is—guitar-driven rock. And then we throw a few through a couple of curveballs at you on the on the record. And and there's a lot of humor on this record. Listen to the lyrics on some of the stuff that it's it's all it's all got a punchline. Yeah, no, it's it's a fun record. It's a blast, and I mean, you know, it, it feels like. You know, it's funny because I really do look forward to seeing it live whenever. Although, who knows how much of it you get to play live? Because, like you said, by the time you actually get back on stage, you may have three albums done. <laughs> no, we'll go. We'll go. A lot of this stuff has to be on stage. <laughs> All right, cool, dude. Always a pleasure catching up. Thank you so much for the time. Yeah, thanks, Steve. I, mean, I was uh, looking forward to this one. Thanks, man. Have a good one. Thank you. Okay, man. Bye. Bye. Hey, this is Steve Balton. You've been here on my turning point with special guest Alice Cooper. Why choose proven quality sleep from Sleep Number? Because our Sleep Number 360 smart bed is really smart. It senses your movement and automatically adjusts to help keep you both comfortable. Plus, it's temperature balancing so you stay cool. It's even smart enough to know exactly how long, how well, and when you slept. And to help you get almost 30 minutes more restful sleep per night. Sleep Number takes care of the science. All you have to do is sleep. And now, during our Memorial Day sale, save $1,000 on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed Queen now only $19.99. Only for a limited time. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. Sometimes you need to take control to make a difference. That's why with FlexPath from Capella University, you're in control. Set your own deadlines and leverage your experience to move at a pace that works for you. Discover a different way forward at capella.edu. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.